The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis In Tune. St. Louis In Tune focuses on issues that impact and connect the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. It's a pleasure to have Nene Harris back in the studio. She is an author on all things St. Louis. She has numerous books uh, that she's uh, authored on St. Louis, including Carondelet. We had her on last fall on the book about... This used to be... This used to be St. Louis, right. This used to be St. Louis. And today she's going to be talking about the second edition. It's The first edition was so popular, she had to update it and do a second edition. It's on downtown St. Louis. Now, downtown St. Louis has had some interesting things happen recently... But historically, it is very, very important. Nini, welcome back to St. Louis In Tune. Well, it is my pleasure to be here, and particularly on this subject, because we are obsessed with things that are going awry, and we forget like how beautiful our downtown St. Louis is. And I'm taking this time when things are quieter downtown because of COVID, to walk around. You don't have to worry about the traffic. You can walk out and look up at the beautiful cornices and the beautiful streetscapes and not worry about blocking people on the sidewalk or whatever. It's a great time to see downtown. And I know that you give walking tours. You haven't done them recently because of COVID. But this particular book, I was very intrigued on how you sectioned it off. You've not sectioned it by what I would call a decade, from this decade to this decade. Talk about how you section this book off, and then we're going to kind of pick these off a little bit. Well, the first chapter is from our founding 1764 to 1817. St. Louis changes radically in 1817 because of steam power and paddle wheelers coming up from New Orleans in two weeks. Before that, to come to St. Louis... The best way was from New Orleans. Um, You basically had to be able to walk about 1,000 miles. That kind of limited who came here. Right. It limited what goods were here, Um, how people brought goods here. Well, first of all, we floated our products, which were the the pelts. We floated them downstream on flatboats. loaded him heavy with the pelts, and then the trip downstream could take, well, it could go as fast as a couple weeks, but that was in springtime. And it was also very dangerous because the current was so wild in spring and the river was constantly changing with spring floods. And then to bring goods back from New Orleans, they loaded them onto keelboats or flatboats, and then the flatboatmen walked along the side of the riverbank with heavy ropes over their shoulders tied to the boats and pulling them upstream against the current. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this took three months to get back, and they had to bring everything that could not be made by hand from the raw materials on uh, it, 
in, in the St. Louis area. Anything that was manufactured, any hardware, any traps, any pottery, glass, fabric, rope, canvas, um, again, any kind of manufactured goods had to be brought from New Orleans. And and do you think of the energy and the manpower? One year, 10 boats arrived all at once. And that they came in a convoy because there had been pirates on the river. Hmm. And this was in the 1780s. There was such excitement that that one year was never called by its year. It was always the year of the 10 boats. And, hmm. and you think how special that was to get all those goods. Coffee. People loved coffee. Right. But it had to be pulled all those miles, and the river was crooked. It twisted and turned a whole lot more than today. The Army Corps of Engineers has been straightening it out for 160 years. So it was a lot longer route to get from New Orleans. So that's one era right there, the era when, when you, everything is powered by human muscle. And you appreciated the things that you had, because, and you made them last. You sure did. Amazingly, and I can't figure out how this happened, but they had pool tables and pool halls. How did they do that? I don't understand, but pool or billiards was very popular with the French, and I found record a sale of a small little French cabin with a a table in it, a billiards table, and it, 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 it this was during the colonial era. And then I talked to Bob Moore about it. He had found three references to three different billiard halls. So that's what the men were doing in the evening. Well, I guess the popular thing, you know, you, you have to uh, st- stay up with the things that make make you are, are entertaining to you. <laughs> well, they, make you happy. they enjoyed community life. They really did. They enjoyed playing a fiddle and dancing. And there, there was a lot of social life in the village, in spite of the fact that it was out on the frontier and in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French settlers were a pretty um, community-oriented bunch of people. So what changed then to the next section? What's, what's that dividing okay. line at 1817? It, it's that riverboat arriving in 1817, the Pike, that arrived, took about two weeks to get from New Orleans that was powered by steam instead of being pulled up river. And with that, goods started arriving, all different people, different kinds of commerce. Um, You look at people like Henry Shaw, fabulous contributor to our community. He still is contributing to our community. Right. Shaw's Garden. I'm not sure he could have uh, walked the thousand miles to get here. He arrives in 1819 on a on a steam powered boat, and it took about two weeks. He looked at St. Louis. It was pretty primitive, and he was thinking, "Do I want to do business here?" And he got back on the boat and went up to St. Charles. He looked at St. Charles, and he got back on the boat and came to St. Louis and decided this is where he was going to make his life, his business, and this is where it was going to be. So if we go to population explosion around this time when the steamboats were coming in, we would see a influx of To see real growth. Um, The people who come here, though, it's still pretty demanding, Mm -hmm. you know, to get here, and this is a rugged life here. You have about uh, 
thousand people hovering around a thousand for a long time in the early days of st louis and they're all downtown okay all of st louis is in downtown so when you look at downtown history you're looking at the whole history of St. Louis. Now, when you're talking about downtown then, what are we talking about? Well, we're, the boundaries today are basically Shoto on the south, Martin Luther King on the north, and on the west, Jefferson. So that was down. that is downtown today, mm-hmm. and that was St. Louis. Okay. There was very little that spilled out of downtown for many decades. Um, in the western part of you know, over like where you live, mm-hmm. the, you had prairie, you had fields where they were growing hay and oats and corn. Um, there were about uh, 1,200 cattle and 200 horses grazing in that area. Um, <laughs> people had stockades. Most of the blocks, let's see, in downtown, they were about 240 feet wide and 300 deep in the town part, which was right along the river. The town was from the river west to where the courthouse is, the old courthouse. And that's really what the town was. That's the town. And then the rest of what is downtown now, that was common fields or prairie lands or where they get in the, the commons is where they gathered firewood and they grazed their animals. And then the the common fields, that was commons, the common fields were divided into long, narrow strips, and that's what they farmed. So what's interesting, folks, is nowadays from the courthouse to the riverfront is either park or highway. And it's kind of like the exact opposite. And then from west of the courthouse, you have you have buildings. But the the essence of of St. Louis was from that from that courthouse just down to the river. That's right. So in 1837, we have a population of 12,000 people. Almost all of them live east of the courthouse. Wow. There are very few buildings west of the courthouse wow. that are over that are, are two or more stories tall. And so and and this was it already at that point a busy exciting river frontier it was it was very exciting um it it didn't matter that you know that's the population of a small town out in kansas uh, because it was the center of so much commerce and so many different kinds of people um and so much activity um it, it, there was so much excitement. Okay, look, you're looking at a photo now in the book. You want to see, I, I'm looking upside down. Look at, look at where that photo was published. Okay, it's, it says, Covered wagons were parked in front of businesses lining Broadway in this wood engraving that appeared on May 1st, 1858 in the Illustrated London News. In Lon- it was, the downtown St. Louis was so exciting that in London, they were reading about what was happening in St. Louis. Isn't that phenomenal? Now, either we were really, really good or they were really bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's uh, not, how do I put it? It was just a center for so many expeditions west, movement west. Um, it was, it truly was where northern culture and southern culture 
Merge. Met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, right here. And and the sophistication of the East was coming West. The building of the the cathedral in 1834, uh, the old cathedral that we look at as quaint now, that was yeah. such a sophisticated and worldly oh, yeah. building. Yes. Greek revival and, and smooth stone, you know, versus the, the stone rubble. Um, and and uh, vertical log structures of the French that were scattered around, and then you have the sophisticated building. Very interesting. We're talking to Nini Harris, who's the author of Downtown St. Louis. We're looking at the second edition that Nini has uh, put together here. And one thing I noticed at the end of each section are like a collage of photographs or postcards or artwork that's done from that period of time. Oh, and those are fun to put together. Let me tell you, there are so many fabulous images uh, from different eras of downtown because, again, it was such a center of activity. Um, it, it, so, I'm sorry, the collage pages are just, they're just fun. They, they are, and, and we'll talk about where you can get this book, but uh, just... Before I forget, Nini's going to be doing a book signing on Saturday, July the 25th from 1 o'clock to 3 p.m. at Hammond's Books at 1939 Cherokee Street. So that's Saturday, July 25th, 1 to 3, book signing at Hammond's Books, 1939 Cherokee Street. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. So this next section you have labeled from 1874 to 1916. And when we were talking about this, we, we, um, you said you didn't go to the Civil War. You didn't use historical kind of markers. You used different events, i.e., okay, now we went from manpower, then we went to steam power. So what changes here at this okay, time? Okay, so we have Eads Bridge. Uh-huh. Eads Bridge changed everything. Eads Bridge changed everything. It changed how downtown was built, but also it it literally kept St. Louis from becoming a sort of ghost town or backwater. The river is what gave St. Louis life. River, the river is why we existed. And all the traffic from that river connected us with the northwest, the northeast, and the south, and, and through New Orleans with Europe. That that river was our our very reason to exist and we go from that to during the civil war it becomes clear the river helps is makes st louis critical to the union effort the confederacy wanted us bad and the union wanted to secure us because that river was critical but during the war you see the change going over more and more to railroad Hmm. And the thing that gave us life becomes the barrier to our economic future. Chicago had gotten a lot of our business during the Civil War because we were basically a Union city. By In a Confederate state. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So we were at risk. So a lot of business moved north to Chicago. The Chicago business interest really they benefited from it they weren't being vultures in any way it was just reality of the time 
But after the Civil War, I, I'd like to share this because I have so many wonderful friends from Chicago. Chicago business interests were not particularly pay, playing fair with St. Louis. And we had a remarkable man here, James B. Eads. What a great patriot. He was a wonderful man, a wonderful union supporter. He was um, self-educated. He had... Um, had to stop school at age 13 when um, his family was coming here to start a dry goods store, and the riverboat they were on with all their goods for the store, um, it burned and sank. Wow. And uh, they got to the riverbank with nothing but the shirts on their backs. Wow. And so he goes to work as clerking in a store, and he teaches himself to become an engineer, borrows books from a private library and reads and becomes, he trains himself to become an engineer. He gets jobs on the river. He figures out how to build a diving belt that he goes down at the bottom of the river and feels around where there were sunken boats and becomes a rich man salvaging stuff from the bottom of the river with his own hands. Right, right. Yeah, and then he builds the ironclads. He designs and builds right. the ironclads during the Civil War, um, which Grant used to conquer Vicksburg, clear the Mississippi for the Union, and cut mm-hmm. the Confederacy in two. And then he decides we need a bridge, and he designs it. And those people in Chicago don't like that. Access. Oh, they don't want us getting that bridge. They do everything to undermine it, including they got legislation through Springfield state government to say that the bridge could only uh, meet up with East St. Louis at a certain street, which meant the bridge had to be at the northern edge of downtown. Where all the tracks were on the southern end. You got it. Right. That's it. So they thought that had killed it. And then Eads comes up with the idea of building a tunnel from Washington Avenue all the way to the south end of downtown. Which is what Metrolink is using today. Thank you. And what, what a great gift Metrolink is to us. It it's provides us with efficient, fast transportation. Again, thank you to our civic ancestors. Um, you know, it's just amazing. So the bridge brings deck traffic onto Washington Avenue, making that a spine of commercial development with all the big warehouses over the next 30 and 40 years that are built there. And then the tunnel under downtown to the tracks, it emerges where the Metrolink station is for Bush Stadium. And you had big warehouses built there. It took the traffic away from the riverfront. You know, what's interesting, as, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, two things right now that we do value here in St. Louis, riverboats yeah. and the bridge. Because many of the iconic pictures you see of St. Louis in on when we did have a football team or even when the Cardinals are playing or the Blues, they always want to include the arch. They want to include the bridge. And obviously, we don't have any more riverboats anymore. Uh, maybe sometime there we will can be get some them show again. up. Right, but yeah. those used to be tourist attractions. And mm-hmm. so, two of the things that you've highlighted that have been turning points here 
in our city, in, in the downtown area, yeah. are things we still hold value. Absolutely. And when you go up in that platform for the Laclede Landing Bridge, um, for it, the, uh, the Metrolink station is actually in the bridge, hmm. and you go up in that station and you look at the arch through the stone arches hmm. of the bridge. That's cool. That's cool. It's beautiful. So we've been talking to Nene Harris. She is the author of Downtown St. Louis. We're looking at her second edition, and we've gotten through an area up to where the Eads Bridge has been built, and then the development of downtown really kind of takes off because of the rail traffic, because of all of the goods that are coming in. And we're going to be uh, talking after the break. We're going to we're going to hit right at 1917. And for those people who have listened to this show many, many times or, and who are regular listeners, they know we've talked a lot about that particular time frame and that it's a, a real big transition time for our country. But we're going to find out what was transitional about that in St. Louis. Mark, what do you think about all this? Um, yeah, I know I had a little technical difficulty in the beginning, but it's just amazing to me. I didn't hear the very beginning of the show, but I, I'm just curious, maybe you went over why St. Louis, the spot in Missouri, maybe it was the confluence of the of the rivers, I'm not sure, but why did they choose the spot where we are right now? Okay, well, we're going to have to was take a break, a and Nene will, will answer that question okay. right when we come back. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. St. Louis in Tune is recorded live each week at the studios of KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston. We're talking to Nene Harris. She is the author of Downtown St. Louis. We're talking about the second edition. And prior to the break, Mark asked a question about why was this particular place chosen for the city? And Nini's answer is? Because the rivers were the highways of that day. And the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri was like the major intersection of everything from the Rocky the Appalachians to the Rockies. You go be, beyond that to just the specific location, Laclede and Shoto went up to the confluence and then came downstream. And from the confluence to where the arch grounds are, every place was very susceptible to flooding. And when they got to what are the arch grounds, there were a series of natural limestone terraces so they could be right next to the river and yet they could be above the floods. So it was nature that chose the site. And if you think of it, there have been two great civilizations in mid-America, the mound builders and the American civilization. And both civilizations have created major cities at this place. Nature says Saint, there will always be a great city here as long as there are any kind of human beings. Yeah, St. Louis used to be, well, it is still is known as Mound City. That's because right. Because we don't see the mounds anymore. I think there's one down off of I-55 South that's uh, protected now, but most of the mounds have been removed. The Osage Indians now own that mound. Right. And uh, there wow. was a house on top of it. They've taken that down. It's much bigger than it looks from the highway because 
they built up the highway to a higher level and then they filled in between the highway and the mound with fill. But if you look at the sides of the mound, you see that it was really a substantial mound. It was called Sugarloaf Mound. Okay, there we go. So we're, we're, we're moving from the manpower to steam power to railroads, and now we end up, Nini? We're going in a different path here with how Saint, downtown St. Louis develops as a major, major commercial center, all of downtown becomes filled with commerce. By about 1910, you see the housing has is being replaced by large commercial buildings or industrial buildings. Um, and you see this area becoming this uh like Mecca for business and um, industry, and it's where the whole community comes together. They're little pockets, they're residential pockets. Like on the northeast corner, you still have um, the Ashley Tenement that would be um, very near Laclede's Landing, mm-hmm. just a little north of Laclede's Landing on Broadway. And there you had hundreds of Polish people who would, it was their port of entry into St. Louis Hmm. was that building. Hundreds lived in that one building. In the southeast corner, you had the beginnings of the Lebanese community over around 10th and Market, very close, or 9th and Market, very close to um, City Garden. There, just south of it, you had Hop Alley, which was a little Chinese community. There was an African-American settlement that was just to the west and sort of um, uh, closer to Union Station. So you had these residential pockets, but it was becoming more where everybody came to work. So by 1917, you see this boom on Washington Avenue. You have... Um, uh, Jewish immigrants from uh, Poland and Russia and uh, new Italian immigrants from Sicily who are living just north of downtown and Romanians from the east side. And they're, they're either walking to Washington Avenue to work from their nearby neighborhoods or they're taking streetcars across the river and they're... they're um, working in in clothing factories and gar- they're in the new garment industry that's growing up along that street and that's just one part of downtown right, you right. know it, it's it, there were just so many levels of excitement there was still business in the um riverfront but it just was no longer the hub of activity once the railroads came the hub of activity moved to over by Bush Stadium and It really Washington pushed Avenue. things back. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm looking through the book right now, and I see the skeleton. This photograph is the skeleton of the Civil Courts building, the 14 stories tall, that was being built in 1928. It's just... I've never seen this photograph. It's just incredible. But the other thing is the, the dust and the coal... The coal smoke that's behind it, and we all know about the coal day yeah. that you know you couldn't see even the street lights. The coal was was so bad, but how how the war, both wars, changed things and brought industry. Changed them culturally. Um, 
with the First World War, you see all these different kinds of people living in St. Louis and, and working downtown and celebrating their individual cultures. With the war, it's a little harder to celebrate your individual culture. And it was because it was the complications of the war for St. Louis. Um, you know, in Europe, you had um, the, the, you had Germany, you had Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you had Turkey basically making up one side. On the other side, the major players were France, England, and Italy. Um, the Irish, we had such a large number of Irish-born and second- and third-generation Irish. The Irish wanted the English to lose hmm. because they still didn't have their freedom in right. England. There was in no Ireland. love loss there. No, they they couldn't even go to school beyond eighth grade because the English did not allow the Irish to get an education. Hmm. Um, so they wanted the English to lose. The Germans, you know, were supporting. Germany. The Austrians were supporting Austria, so they're supporting that side. Um, the Bohemians wanted the Austro-Hungarian Empire to lose because, and we had a huge Bohemian population in St. Louis, if the Austro-Hungarian Empire lost, then they felt that their cousins back in Bohemia would be able to get their freedom from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The tensions had to be unbelievable in St. Louis during World War One, because your cousins are fighting your cousins. And then we enter the war, and we have, we have people born in Poland and Germany going over there in the uniforms of American doughboys. Now, Poland was... They, they were in between Russia and Germany, so they were slaughtered. slaughtered. But, you know, we think we have conflicts today. Right. Um, we have so much going for us compared to what they had to face and deal with. So you start to see people kind of downplaying their differences. It's, and, and the Germans stop speaking German on the street. The Liederkranz, their membership, shrinks. Interesting. Um, and then they build that beautiful soldier's memorial after the war. Right. And, and you go to that, that um, cenotaph, and there are names of all different nationalities, over 1,000 names. I think it's 1,076 names on it of young men from St. Louis City who died in the First World War. And you look at those names, and you realize all the different places they came from. And they put on the uniform of the American doughboy. It's 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 interesting and it's it's emotional for you because there was one one unifying aspect and it was to fight the oppression and the aggression that was going on uh, in Europe at the time. And the other thing is ultimately these people were choosing the United States. Over their they heritage. made an incredible, costly choice. They fought against their cousins. Some of them were foreign-born, and they put on 
right? It's, it's today, it's hard to believe it. But they had a concept, and their concept was the Constitution. They knew that this place was not a theocracy. It was not a nation based on one on, on a nationality or race, as they would say. You know, it's different to be an Englishman than it is to be a German or a Frenchman. Right. This was the place you chose because of a set of laws. This is a phenomenal thing. It may, yes, we say it's an experiment. It is an experiment. Can a nation continue with that concept? And can we, can we continue and make it better? And, and that's something we need to always ask the question. And one reason we do talk a lot about history on this show, because it, it puts things into context. It frames things. If we don't know what happened in the past, or, or why is this wall here? Well, before you tear down the wall, know why it was put up to begin with. That's, that's right. That's an important thing. So what happens after World War II in downtown St. Louis? Well, I kind of put from the beginning of World War I through World War II till the end in it's it's in one chapter because there's a whole series of movements going on mm-hmm. in that era. And you have all these different peoples here. The economy booms in the 20s, and you have all these great Art Deco buildings that are constructed. They're marvelous. And then and the scale of the buildings is growing. And then you have the horrible Depression. And with the Depression, you have things like Soldiers Memorial, Keele Auditorium, which is now the Stiefel. You have these great civic structures built on top of the great civic structures from the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And and then you see downtown mobilized to win World War II. Wow. Wow. And then after it's over, we have a flood of new immigrants. They are refugees. Some, um, I found the story of two survivors of death camps that I have in in the, the story for the beginning, the chapter after World War II, who built new lives on Washington Avenue. Hmm. One, a survivor of Auschwitz who becomes an appliance salesman at Sticks, Beer, and Fuller. And he's a great guy. I, I He was my friend's Uncle Henry, so I always think Uncle Henry, and I, can't, I often can't think of his name because they changed his name for English if in the United States. But... Um, he, when appliances were new, he, he'd sell the appliances there, and then he'd go to people's homes and show them how to use their new refrigerator versus their old <laughs> icebox and how to use the settings. And he was quite a character. He um, used his suit coat as a filing cabinet. And that all day long, when people would t- give them their addresses and they'd set times or whatever, or he'd have to make notes about whatever, he would rip it off on a little piece of paper, write the note, put the little piece of paper on his suit coat, and pin it with the straight pin to his suit coat. So by the end of his sales day, he was covered with scraps of paper and um, 
just a successful, wonderful human being. I found another man just in obituaries. There was a long obituary done uh, years ago, and I clipped it because it was such a remarkable story. A man who had learned how to sew so he could sell, sew Nazi uniforms so he could live through the Holocaust. Mm. And he came here, got work in the Merchandise Mart building, 10th and Washington, and was a tailor there for his life. You know, that's one thing you mentioned to me before we got on the air was these are firsthand accounts that you tried to get. It's not like you're reading about what somebody said in a book. You went and actually had talked to people and had and got maybe some firsthand accounts from what the newspapers had, had discussed well, at the time. And so it's not like you're supposing what happened or interpreting what happened. You are actually using what people have said. I let on. them talk. Yeah. Uh, Charles Dickens has fascinating descriptions of downtown St. Louis in the 1840s. And uh, people always say he didn't like downtown or St. Louis. No, read it. It's very interesting. He stayed at the Planters, and he was really impressed by the Planters. He described the riverfront in the 1840s, the American section versus the old French section. Um, Francis Parkman talks about the energy of the riverfront when he's taking off on his trip in 1846, what the St. Louis Riverfront looks like. Hmm. And he later writes The the Oregon Trail. Um, Then there was the man who lived across the street who I interviewed decades ago. He hasn't been with us for decades. He was an optometrist and a very proper gentleman, a very good Catholic man, always going to church, very proper, but he told me about when he was studying to become an optometrist, and he was a teenager, and he went to class in this building on an upper floor in downtown St. Louis across from the Ambassador Theater. And the Ambassador Theater had a chorus line called the Ambassadorables. (laughs) And all these teenage students of optometry knew the schedules of the shows because then they knew when the chorus girls were changing their costumes. Uh And everything stopped (laughs) on a certain schedule, and they all went to the windows because they could look down into the changing rooms for the ambassadorables. So, um, yes, I used first-person accounts. Yeah, they made sure their uh, glasses were uh, exactly uh, going 2015, not okay. 2020. <laughs> well, he said <laughs> that he was <laughs> Well, he was surprised. He said, I thought we would have broken more. He said it was amazing we didn't break more you know, glasses when we were running to get to the ambassadorial, uh, ambassadorables. That's, that's, I've never heard of that, the ambassadorables. That's that's very interesting. Did, did they later become the ambassadors? No, some people think they were the the forerunners of the Rockettes. Oh. But it was amazing how this old man would he just how he would perk up when he started talking about his days studying optometry. Now we've got just a few minutes left here, Nini. When after the war and you have all these, you know, buildings being built, continued, and we kind of you you have a section on monuments. But what what happens 
as the monuments are built to downtown, because I know the whole riverfront gets torn down in preparation for the National Expansion, Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, describe to us a little bit more about the changes that happened in downtown. Well, first of all, the riverfront was underutilized. It was wonderful. There were these great historic buildings. They were the warehouses that had fueled westward expansion. I grieve that we lost them. At the same time, this is one of the rarest things in American history. We tore down something absolute great, wonderful, fabulous in that riverfront and built something extraordinary in its place. Usually we tear down great things and put in parking lots, okay? Or we put a highway through or whatever. But we built the Gateway Arch. Wow. We taxed ourselves to build that. Then in the next phase, it was the federal government. But we put up the money to buy up all the property, to clear the land and create a monument that would say that piece of property, extraordinary things happened on it, that this truly was the gateway to the West. And, and it's just such a, a, a rem- it is sacred ground. And then the monument, its very essence, is such, the, it's the perfect symbol but it's not just that. It's the perfect symbol of what happened in the 19th century. And it's also so space-aged. It, it is one of the rare times when a monument is a monument to two eras accidentally. Hmm. The 19th century role of St. Louis in, in the United States. And then I look at it as also a monument to the greatest generation. They grew up with outhouses in St. Louis neighborhoods. We, in 1947, there were, um, oh, I just forgot the number, 1947, I think it was 37,000 dwellings depended on outdoor privies wow. in the city. It was phenomenal. And then a lot more, thousands more had shared bathrooms and all. We had Victorian plumbing because much of the city was built during the Victorian era. Right. That was not uncommon. So you have people who were raised without houses who went to the moon. Oh my God. The stories are so complimentary of the people who came to this country in the 19th century and touched foot on that river. Interesting. Interesting. You know, don't forget that Nini's going to be at Hammond's Books on 1939 Cherokee Street for a book signing on Saturday, July the 25th from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. That's Hammond's Books, 1939 Cherokee Street, Saturday, July 25th from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. You know, and this is this book, folks, it's downtown St. Louis. It's by Reedy Press. And where can people get the book, Nini? Well, Hammond's Books, you can contact ReedyPress.com. You can go to my website. My phone number is there. I do curbside service. You drive down the street, and I'll run to the car with the book. Wow, it's, okay. it's N-I-N-I <laughs> Harris. N-I-N-I Harris. And you can Google her, or as some people say, goggle her, or I Googled. And you can check out what's going on there. This is a great book. The, the photographs are unbelievable. The stories are just superb. You've got all of the iconic museums and monuments and landmarks in St. Louis here. 
things that we, we should know you have pictures I've never even seen before. Great book to get, folks. So, Nini, some closing thoughts from you. Enjoy downtown. Our downtown is a treasure. And again, this is a great opportunity to really take it in and in, enjoy it. And um, uh, I'll be hanging out some mornings at Washington Avenue Post, 1315 <laughs> Washington Avenue. I got to say it, it's my favorite coffee shop. They have a great latte. But uh, there are a number <laughs> of wonderful uh, uh, places to hang out in downtown. And yes, it's open. Oh, and the library now you can go in and roam for a half hour there is a marvelous exhibit uh featuring lewis sullivan going on and so you can roam for a half an hour so go in the grand hall and see the exhibit downtown st louis the second edition by nini harris nini thanks for coming in the studio today we appreciate it thank you